This week's podcast is brought to you by Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so that learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. These young people are studying in a new way. Each student is using a teaching machine. The pitch you are hearing for a teaching machine is from a promotional video made back in 1954. A device which creates vastly improved conditions for effective study. By today's standards, the devices you hear students clunking around on are primitive. These gadgets are mechanical, not digital. But the promises made by their promoter, a famous psychologist from the day, B.F. Skinner, might sound familiar. One function of a teaching machine, then, is to give the student a quick report on the adequacy of his response. This is important not only for efficient learning, it generates a high level of interest and enthusiasm. People don't talk much today about these early teaching machines, some of which were made out of brass or wood. And that is no accident, according to Audrey Waters, a longtime critical observer of EdTech, who's out with a new book called Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning. In fact, she argues there's a kind of historical amnesia by today's technologists, especially around edtech. The past is forgotten and, and almost deliberately forgotten. It's part of the, it's part of the narrative of this idea that we're innovators and we came up with these ideas and no one, no one has ever thought of this stuff before. So thank goodness we're here to save education. And, you know, I, I wanted to show that in fact, you know, I think many people do know that people have been using technology in the classroom since the beginning. Um, technology isn't new, but these ideas of personalized learning in particular aren't new either. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor of Ed Surge. Today we are dusting off these old teaching machines from all the way back to the 1920s, to see what these low-tech devices can teach us about EdTech today. I connected with Audrey Waters for one of the very first interviews she's giving about her new book. The book comes out in August, technically, but it is already available for pre-order. The work is long awaited by Waters' many followers on social media and fans of her long-running blog, Hack Education. Waters has been critical of EdTech media, specifically of EdSurge, over the years, which I did ask her about near the end of this. I started out by asking Waters why she thinks it's so important for people today to know this history of teaching machines. For me, it was really important to trace this history because I think it helps us, I mean, I think it's good to, I think it's important to know the history, but I think it helps us understand better the kinds of things that we're seeing today. Because it's somehow, it's, I think it's very clear when you look at people in the 1920s who were making the argument that in order to personalize education, they used the word individualize, in order to individualize education, we needed to use machinery um, and we needed to automate education. And that sounds so contradictory, but yet I think that that's actually a lot of what we see today. We're using software that in in order to personalize an education, we're really standardizing. Um, we're standardizing things as well. And I was, I also wanted to tell a story 
um, that didn't have anything to do with computers. Um, because I think that too often in, in ed tech, we get so hung up on the tech, right? We're so committed to talking about the latest gadget, the new software, this or that app, um, that we really act as though somehow it's that the tech is the tech is all there is to talk about. The tech is the driving force of change. The tech is the driving force of history. And so I wanted to sort of remove computers from the discussion and just talk about this moment in the mid 20th century that was, I think, very interesting because um, it was really the rise of educational psychology. It was the rise of education technology. And that's how we got here today. Both our ideas about how people learn um, and our ideas about how machines will be useful for getting to people to learn more efficiently. Yeah, just to preview, I want to get into some of the specifics because they're so fascinating. I didn't know so much of this stuff. I was like, what? How did I not know this? Um, well, just so, sorry to interrupt you, but one of the things that's, that's, I think, interesting too is that the echoes of things today, like I didn't want to be pedantic in the book and say, and this is just like what's happening now. But to me, there were so many echoes when you could see these discussions, um, sort of the conflicts between researchers and business, um, for example, or the pushback um, against why why machines might be a bad idea or why machines are necessary. There were, there's so many echoes, so many things that we still are struggling with, still we're are struggling with today. Now, I think your point about that word amnesia really resonates as far as like summing up the, the, that, that point you're making. So just to, again, just to, just to give a, a taste before we get into specifics, you say your history is looking at a time before computers. In fact, these teaching machines were made of brass and like, I mean, I was like, what are these materials? They were very, very like, like mechanical. They were very mechanical. Yes. Um, in fact, Sidney Pressy, who's often credited as being the, the inventor of the first teaching machine. Uh, he actually manufactured his out of a old typewriter uh, and so you could, and uh, B.F. Skinner, who's perhaps best known, most the name most readily associated with teaching machines, um, built one, you know, in his, I mean, his workshop out of, out of wood. Um, one of some of the most popular best-selling ones, um, I actually found one on eBay, um, it was made of plastic. Um, these are, uh, these are, you know, these are very much mechanical and quite simple devices, but in some ways, you know, a lot of the soft, we like to talk about the complexity of computers and software, but so much of the ideas from these teaching machines has actually just been ported into the software that we use today. And in fact, so much of it is actually reflected in a lot of the worksheets. Um, and that's, you know, the, you know, the worksheets that maybe you, <laughs> you and I are familiar with actually Far too many, far too many students today are still familiar with worksheets, um, paper worksheets. Now they're now they're digital, but this is also the, the worksheets are really a legacy of the teaching machines and this idea of programmed instruction, which was the the big idea that we could use machines to program and personalize instruction. Yeah, that 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 irony or that contradiction of like personalized but but actually standardized. Yes. Um, that you mentioned earlier. So 
I did want to talk about B.F. Skinner because he's so interesting. So interesting. And I haven't seen this kind of detail. These I had, I had sort of heard. He's, as you mentioned, a big name, so to speak. But I think a lot of people don't know all the details. So, and in fact, I, I know some people don't even know who he is. But in psychology circles, he's somebody that if you took a basic uh, psychology course, you might have encountered him, right? Like, uh, as far as behaviorism. Can you just quickly, for, for listeners who don't know, say who B.F. Skinner uh, was? Yeah, I would. I mean, I would say that B.F. Skinner was probably one of the most well-known public scientists of the 20th century. You know, he was on talk shows. Um, he was, he was, his face was on the cover of magazines. He was a best-selling author. Um, people, people knew who he was. This wasn't, it wasn't even a name um, today. I'll, I'll, I'll pick on someone. I mean, it wasn't a name like, let's even say like Angela Duckworth. I think people in education psychology are like, oh yes, I'm very familiar with her work. Um, but if, you know, if you ask sort of um, someone on the street, they're like, not a clue. Um, B.F. Skinner was was very, very well known um, uh, in popular culture, um, not just in academic circles. Uh, he was a psychologist at Harvard, um, and he was a radical behaviorist. Behaviorism was really um, the uh, the dominant sort of theory of psychology in the 20th century. Um, this was the idea uh, that uh, you couldn't study the mind per se, but you could understand how organisms learned by their behaviors. And he was well known for training pigeons, which is why, incidentally, I'm so obsessed with pigeons. Um, he was well known for training pigeons um, to, to do tasks. Skinner was interested in sort of getting animals to do things that weren't natural. Um, and so he would, he would train pigeons to play ping pong, for example, or train them to play the piano. And he would use positive reinforcement, which was his big sort of insight, is that in order to in order to learn, um, you need reinforcement, and it works best with positive reinforcement. And that was really the foundation for his education technology, was that we'll build machines, they'll give students, just like pigeons, um, positive reinforcement, and students, just like pigeons, will learn, um, will learn new skills. Um, not playing ping pong, I, he had <laughs> he had other educational aspirations, but yeah, and so behaviorism was really the dominant idea um, until the late sixties, early seventies, when, according to one story at least, it was kind of supplanted by cognitive science. After the break, we look at how this famous psychologist B.F. Skinner even got interested in education in the first place, and why his machine tapped into national narratives about what education needed. Stay with us. You're reinventing education models in real time. The rise of distance and hybrid learning means staff and students are relying on your systems like never before. But you also need solutions that are simple to use, work together seamlessly, and are backed by world-class support. That's why educators everywhere trust Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so the learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Join Cisco at ISTE Live 2021 to build a bridge to the future of education together. Plus, attend three Cisco sessions and automatically receive a Cisco-branded coffee mug and be entered for your chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. 
One winner will be chosen on Monday and Tuesday of the show. Valid for U.S. participants only. Learn more at cs.co slash isd21. That's cs.co slash isd21. Now back to the episode. There's apparently this moment where Skinner became interested in making teaching machines, and it involved seeing his own um, son or daughter in a classroom, Yes, right? his daughter, yes. Yes, he... he yeah, he... It's it, what's fascinating to me is that it's the kind of story you mentioned, you know, Skinner would have been given a TED talk. It would have been the story that he would have started his TED talk with. Right. It's absolutely. And it's the story that when you hear it, it's sort of like this apocryphal story that we hear all the time in ed tech. Right. Um, he visits his his daughter's school. Um, he's uh, he's in the back of the classroom and he's sort of watching the teacher. Um, his daughter's in, I think, fourth or fifth grade watching the teacher, watching the students. And he kind of, he notices sort of with dismay the way in which the classroom operates, that the students are doing math. Um, they are all working on the assignment. The teacher's sort of, um, you know, walking through a lesson. And uh, the students, some students finish quickly. Um, some students struggle. Um, the teacher, you know, picks up their assignments and she'll take them home and grade them and give them back the next day. And he thought, well, this is, you know, this is, this is terrible. This, you know, students aren't getting positive reinforcement. The students who are, uh, who understand it are bored because they've finished quickly. The students who are struggling um, are frustrated. Um, And because they don't get they don't get their work their work back until the next day. They don't know immediately, and they can't get that immediate behavioral um, positive reinforcement, whether they've got the questions right or wrong. And so, according to Skinner, he went home and he built a machine. He built a little wooden box that students could use, and that they would it would t- it would um, if they got the answer right they would be able to go to the next question. Um, and if they didn't get the answer right, they could. They had to choose again. They had to keep working with it until they got the answer right. Just the idea that the student would, the student would be able to see, and the, if they got it correct, it would advance to the next, to the next question. Um, so it would be automated in, in that way. Um, and he, he wanted to make it so that he minimized the... The, the possibility of the student getting the answer wrong. That was really important for him too. In order to sort of enhance the positive behavioral reinforcement, you really want to make sure that the, that the step that the student's taking, that the lesson is the student's going to get it right. And so again, this is, again, has echoes, I think, today when we talk about mastery learning, that you want to make sure that the lesson is geared just right at the right level for the student. It's not too easy. It's not too hard, but you, you want them to get it right. So that of course they feel encouraged so that they, um, that they don't have that negative reinforcement, which Skinner said school is too full. School is too full of negative reinforcements, not just, um, you know, corporal punishment, um, but, but getting the answer wrong. So it was very important to him that teaching machines um, had positive reinforcement for students. Now, and you, you talk about in the book the, the sort of long quest he went on then to try to actually develop teaching machines that were marketable and his using his Harvard connections and his corporate connections yes. and do all this. And I, I think people, I sort of encourage people to, to dig into that because it's, it's all really a fascinating story. But I guess I, I feel like 
one thing I, I, I think a lot of reader or listeners might wonder is like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, especially because like you say, these sound very familiar. These, it almost, like you said, we could, we could take the story that he has and make it a Ted talk today or a founder's narrative for an, uh, uh, a pitch deck. And so I guess, um, you know, I wanted to just kind of hear your thoughts on like what the real, why that's so problematic in your view of like what, you know, this, this, you know, kind of construct that you're saying is at the foundation of a lot of these teaching machines, Skinner's included. People were really interested in Skinner's teaching machines. And of course, it coincides with one of the most important events in um, education technology, of course, which is the Soviet launch of Sputnik, um, when a ton of money, a ton of federal money um, went into ed- education, but particularly scientific education about science and math, and particularly teaching um, education technology, not just teaching machines, um, but there was a, a huge amount of investment um, in, the, in the area and a real feel, feeling like, oh, American students are falling behind. We have to do something. Um, but as the 60s progressed, some of Skinner's ideas kind of ran into, you know, they ran into the counterculture movement this, and the student, the student movement, um, which were really not interested in being treated like pigeons. Um, they were really not interested in having their lives automated in this way. And a lot of the student, student activists um, resented the ways and the way in which I think Skinner imagined learning to be, which is very much engineered. Um, Skinner, the scientist, knew what was best for students, and students were going to be put through their paces in order to, um, to learn that information. There was very little, very little freedom in Skinner's vision. Indeed, Skinner wrote a very well-known book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, um, in the early 1970s, in which he said, freedom doesn't exist, freedom is a facade, um, and Skinner really didn't believe, didn't believe in, um, in, in freedom. And so I think students, students and activists found that, that the ideas that, that of education technology were also antithetical to freedom. And I think that that's, again, really interesting when we think about these things today, when we think about students who are vocal in their opposition to using some of the personalized learning software is that you know all of the all of the promise that the software is going to be liberatory that it's going to free up teachers time that it's going to make students have more control over their learning students often feel like actually um, it doesn't actually it's um, it, it feels oppressive that the software that the engineering dictates what they should do, what they should learn. Um, and students in the 60s really resisted that. Activists in the 60s started to resist that. And in popular culture started to really turn against Skinner. I think most people are familiar with, um, with the movie A Clockwork Orange, which was really an indictment, a, a huge indictment against the kind of behavioral engineering that Skinner envisioned, not just for schools, but for all of society. So it became the dystopian narrative of, of a, that was part of a, a big cultural backlash. Yes, I think so. And I think that that's, you know, I think that that's partly why it's, it's so, it was so interesting to me when I read other histories of education technology they often say that the computer came along and the computer replaced teaching machines and 
Um, and that's why, you know, teaching machines failed because computers came. Um, and I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I would say in, in part that teaching machines didn't fail. And if you look at a lot of what the early educational software looked like and what it still looks like today, <laughs> it looks a lot like behaviorism. It looks a lot like programmed instruction. Um, but also I think that there was a, a, a backlash, a, a societal backlash against the kind of behavioral engineering that, that, that Skinner envisioned. And I, I think we see that today as well with people starting to recognize the way in which software today is also based very, very heavily on behavioral engineering. Um, it's often called something else, right? We call it, you know, push notifications and um, nudges and whatnot. But I think that people are also sort of questioning what, how, you know, why do these engineers have um, the control over what we should be doing and thinking and in education learning? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what is your, your takeaway? It seems like, okay, if you can break people out of that amnesia and see that this story has actually happened a couple times or, you know, um, where there's been similar ideas about personalized learning and a pushback against the reality of them. Um, you know, but like you said, it's still happening. We see still today, I can probably find you some pitches of new entrants to the market that are <laughs> saying just the same things, um, but in digital way. And so, and, and, you know, I think they would argue that the digital does make a difference and that, that something about the technology um, you know, is so much more beyond the the brass or wooden box with a, a lever in it sure. that um, that they can do it and Skinner couldn't. But but there's but I guess yeah. What would your what is a like? What is your response to? Because there is a there is a sense right there there is some educational research that says giving an answer to someone right away does help learning, and there are probably some non behaviorist. Um, kind of pieces of, of education research you could point to. And so I guess, you know, what would you say to somebody who says like, look, we can learn from those and actually not ignore them, but learn from them and do something that is personalized, but that doesn't avoid the trappings. One of the, my favorite um, stories from the book was actually the response of the student activists um, in the South um, in Mississippi um, who were very interested um, in using Skinner's ideas and teaching machines specifically in order to do adult literacy um, it, during Freedom Summer. And of course, um, for folks that uh, for folks that don't know the history, um, in you know in many parts of the South, um, but specifically in Mississippi, there were. Um, there were many ways in which the white white culture had had worked to make sure that um, black people remained disenfranchised, um, including having literacy tests, um, poll tests, um, in order to get people uh, to vote. And so there was a big push in the 1960s, um, in the in 1964 um, or in 1963 and 64 to go down to, for activists um, to work down in Mississippi to help. Um, to help people um, learn to read and write so that they could, um, so that 
so that more people could be enfranchised, so that more, more people could participate in the democratic process. And there was a rise in at the time in not just adult literacy education, but in something called the Freedom Schools. Um, and the Freedom Schools were really um, local um, efforts to work sometimes with, but more, more often outside of the public school system in order to, um, do, to, to, to have education and have education that was meaning, meaningful to African-Americans um, and local communities. And so it, people were interested on one hand in using the teaching machines um, because they felt as though this was a way to do um, adult literacy, um, but they, when they looked at the curriculum, they found that the curriculum really didn't, it didn't, it didn't um, work with the local people. Um, and as part of the whole Freedom School movement was that ideas were supposed to be meaningful to local people. And so it wasn't really something that could be programmed. It was something that was generative. It was, these were ideas that people came with and dialogued together. It wasn't personalized in that kind of in, hyper-individualized way. It was about education as community, education as activism, education as meaningful and local. And they, I think that that's really, to me, one of the, and and I think that this was part of a, a resistance actually, to a curriculum that promised personalization, that promised individual individual achievement, but really um, people felt as though was actually bound up in oppression, and so I think that that's really. An interesting thing to to think about is how do we have education that's meaningful, that's local, that is matters to the community and to the community's members, um, and that actually resists some of these ideas that are about standardization and even about personalization in this highly te- technological way. Yeah, I guess that that seems seems clear is that really it's it's not an argument as you see it about whether the tools can be improved and whether you could make the, you know, AI a little better or the digital whatever better, but that the whole narrative structure is in your view, like the, the thing you're, you're, yes. you're, you're critiquing here and that one that you feel like is sticking around despite yeah. people's critiquing it. And I think, you know, I think that off we, I think we, we think really highly of the technology that we have today. And we talk a lot about the amount of data that we have today, but you know, the even in the 1920s and 30s, um, the amount of data that educational researchers were collecting on students was pretty vast. Um, ben Wood, who's another character um, in the book, another figure in the book, he, he was a, a researcher at Columbia. Um, he worked very closely with IBM. Um, but he had a vision, again, he had this vision that we will personalize education through automation. And data was really a core, uh, a core of, of how he thought we would do it. And, you know, he was instrumental in helping to spread standardized testing in New York. But his idea, you know, he got his hands on a on an IBM calculating machine. And he was like, you know, we will, we'll do the standardized testing, we'll do personality testing, we'll do aptitude testing, um, we'll do achievement testing. And then teachers will have all of this data about students. And with all of this data, we'll be able to personalize education. And this is in the 1930s. And so, you know, this, these are ideas and these are 
um, not just sort of fantasies. He wasn't sort of thinking, imagine someday we'll have all this data. I mean, he was actively working in the 1930s to amass this data um, on students and, and also on IBM employees because uh, they also had a very similar ideas. If we, can, if we can do standardized testing of all of our job applicants and all of our IBM employees, then we'll be able to identify who, you know, different career paths. We'll be able to pick out the ones who are, um, who are sort of executive level, managerial level. So these ideas about more data, um, better calculations and more data, again, are also almost 100 years old. And so I think it's, <laughs> you know, I think that they, that's what they've been, I think that that's what they've been doing. I think that that's what really, um, you know, companies, companies have been amassing data for a, a very long time. And in some ways we can say, well, you know, we, we're still at the point where it's sort of garbage in, <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. But I think that this is, this is, this has really been a, a long-running vision for education technology is we'll just do a bunch of testing um, and then we'll be able to personalize personalize it. Now, you also do mention that you feel like the media has played a role in, um, in sort of uh, puffing up the narrative of, uh, of the kind of promoters of these teaching machines. Um, and I guess I, I feel like I, I, I know that, that that even implicates EdSurge, but it's, it is something that I know you've talked about for a long time of your concern about media. Um, it, it, so I guess, I guess, isn't it true, though, that you've also found plenty of, of reporting on both the pushback and the innovators, you know, whatever, if, if you will, the people? It seems like you've actually found a balanced treatment. But I guess, I'm, so I'm curious to ask, like, what do you think, um, the media kind of contribution has been to the period you looked at and how it's different today. One of the, one of the things that was really interesting to me, particularly when I was looking into Encyclopedia, Encyclopedia Britannica, who were um, a very large, they were very interested um, not just in selling encyclopedias, but also interested in selling other technologies, including teaching machines. And they were helping with a pilot program um, in Virginia um, that was one of the, the one of, one of the um, best known pilot programs of teaching machines using using the teaching machines to teach um, to teach math um, in Virginia schools. And it was fascinating, and it, it, again, echoes of today, that it was always the same executives. It was always the Roanoke schools. Whenever someone went for, a, or whenever a journalist looked for a, a, a quote from somebody or an example of what was working, where and when, it was, it was like this, always this one school, and it was always the principal from the school or the superintendent. And there's the Rolodex, I think. And we, this, you know, as journalists, we, we do, we have a Rolodex and we, we sort of know the quotes we're looking for, and we sort of turn. We we know we can turn to um, certain people who are going to say the things we want to say. But it was really interesting to see, even in the 1960s, that you know the kind of the the quips would be from the same set of people, and it was actually really challenging for me to find with the Roanoke, um, with in the in Roanoke in particular, for me to find responses from people who weren't associated with Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, almost everybody was getting paid, was their school was using you know, the products. And you could just sort of see the way in which actually 
unintentionally, I think, but that journalists were often sort of the corporate mouthpiece or doing the marketing for um, for Encyclopedia Britannica, um, because everybody in a story was sort of one degree uh, away from from being on the on the Encyclopedia Britannica payroll. And I think that that's something today that I, I think you know to be wary of is sort of what are the what are the financial connections that people have when they're so we turn to them to ask for their insight or when we point to a specific specific school to to showcase the ways in which they're using technology sort of like you know where um you know where's the where's the money uh, where does it come from and and it's worth i think it's worth sort of thinking about who funds certain narratives? And I think, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica was really interested in funding a certain narrative. And there are organizations, um, nonprofits, venture philanthropy groups um, that are that do the same thing today. So what is your hope for, for the future? Or what are you hoping that um, maybe that more awareness of this history can do for today's narrative? Uh, I just finished reading a book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark, and it's actually um, quite old. I think it's all, uh, it came out uh, around 2004 initially. Um, but she talks a lot about, it, it's interesting that you bring up hope, because she she talks about the difference between, I think, hope and despair. And a lot of people actually accuse me of being a pessimist, um, and I'm not a pessimist. I'm actually, I actually am hopeful. And what Solnit talks about in her book is she talks about the importance of history for hope. Um, and that actually despair comes from amnesia. Um, we're despairing when we don't know the past. We're despairing when we don't know that people have fought back before, that people have resisted before. And for me, I'm hopeful when I think about for example, the resistance of, um, you know, of SNCC, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, against Skinner, a resistant, uh, hopeful when I think about the ways in which many of those activists who worked in Freedom Summer um, went on to sort of to, to sort of push back against other ways in which technology and bureaucracy was affecting American lives in the 1960s. Um, and so I'm I think that that's the place I find hope today is where I see students who are um, students who are questioning, um, students who are resisting, and communities I think who are building practices that serve their needs rather than serving the needs of of engineers. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. This has been the Ed Surge podcast. If you like this episode in particular, you might check out one we did last summer um, that was titled What a Forgotten Instructional Fad from the 60s Reveals About Teaching. That was with a different historian of education. Glad these folks are out there doing this. And as regular listeners know, we are also going back in time a little bit for our new narrative podcast series called Bootstraps, Merit, Myths, and Education. That series traces the history of ideas around educational equity in America. If you want to keep up with all of this, make sure to subscribe to the Ed Surge podcast wherever you listen. And if you like it, please take a minute to give us a rating or review. And sign up for our new Ed Surge podcast newsletter to get notified every time we have a new episode. You can get that in your inbox. And it also has some background information about each episode. Like this week, we have some photos of of these Skinner teaching machines and links to other essays by Audrey Waters. 
This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Music this episode is by Small Colin. We found that on the Free Music Archive. Track is called All On Me. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thank you for listening. <laughs>